everybody. It's good to be together. If you are elementary school age, I want to invite you to the back. You get to go upstairs if you'd like, go have some fun, listen to people who are much more entertaining than myself. We love you guys. Have a great time up there. We'll see you in just a little bit. If, if you're a regular here, you probably feel uncomfortable because we have not yet passed the love and so you do not know what to do. We haven't received offering yet. We don't do this just to disturb you, but it is kind of fun. Um, we'll, we'll have time for passing the love at the end. We're going to receive the offering as we come forward for communion this week. Uh, we just really want to stay in this spirit where God's moving and ask him to move through the, the sermon as well. And so we'll just kind of do the rest of it as we go. If you are new, uh, it's great to have you. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here, and um, welcome. We're glad to have you as we go through the service. One of the ushers will love to give you a gift, and um, just make sure to, to flag them later on. Wayne, we're going to pick on Wayne. Flag Wayne later on, and he'd love to give you a gift and, and welcome you as well. Uh, we are finishing the year and finishing this series, A God Who Never Changes in an Ever-Changing World. And this has been how we've looked at the Christmas story this year. And last week, if you're here, Pastor Jamel led us through a, a, a couple introductions of people in the Christmas story. But one of them was a man named Simeon. And we're going to sit in this a bit and between this verse in Second Peter and Simeon's words in Luke 2. We're going to just see what God does with that. If you've got a Bible or your device, open it up to Luke 2, verse 25. Of course, it's on the screens. And here Luke records, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him into his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, for the glory to your people, Israel. This is meaty. It might not feel like it at first read, but this is meaty stuff. And one of the first things about it that stands out to me is this, is, this happened before the book of Acts, right? And in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes down on everyone who believes and lives within them. But this happens before that, and so the Holy Spirit operates a little bit different. And the Holy Spirit would come upon individuals, but this was more of a rare occurrence. And here we see Simeon living out how we now get to live, but he's a little bit the exception to the rule. And so the Holy Spirit speaks to him a word, you will not die before you see the Messiah. And Simeon lives according to that word that was spoken over him. Okay, this is a big deal for us. Some of us... The Holy Spirit has spoken something over us. Then let's follow Simeon's lead. Let's live as if that is true. If that is the truest thing of us. This word that he's spoken. I know for me, 
This sounds overly simplistic when I say it into a microphone, but the fact that God loves me as a son and likes me as his son, I'm good. The days I believe that, I am good. The days that I live like that is my identity, I'm good. I can handle whatever. The days that I act like that's up for grabs, those are tough days. And so Simeon lives with this word of the Holy His is real specific. This word from the Holy Spirit that he goes and every day lives as if he will not die until he sees the Messiah. So what is he doing? He is not looking for death. That doesn't make any sense. He's looking for the Messiah everywhere that he goes. And then it says that the Holy Spirit led him. So he's going where the Holy Spirit leads him. For some of us, we're like, this, this is wild. I don't know how to do this. We don't know how because we don't practice. Like, just practice. Try. When you leave here today, say, okay, Holy Spirit, will you lead me somewhere? And if you get it wrong, you know what? All you have to do is say, whoops, try again. And try again and try again. It's not familiar. Just like if I sat at that drum set and tried to play drums right now. I don't know how. But if I sat there every day for four hours, I could six months from now play you like a song. Practice. Simeon got really good at following the Holy Spirit's leading and encountered the Messiah on this day because he practiced day after day. Holy Spirit, where are you leading me? And that's what I'm talking about. We can say, okay, Holy Spirit, I believe you live within me and you speak to me. Holy Spirit, where are you leading me? And then you stop talking for a moment and listen to a prompting in your heart and follow that prompting. And if it was your pizza for last night, you just say, whoops, and you go again until you get used to it, until you start to be able to discern where the Holy Spirit is leading and where it's you. Does that make some sense? Okay, none of that's the sermon. That's just like, that's just, let's start talking about this stuff. Let's start noticing it in Scripture. These things that, that Simeon lived into, now we get to live into every day. And so let's, let's be guided by that. Where I am particularly struck is at the end of what he says when he's holding Jesus. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory to your people, Israel. Now, for the glory of Israel, that's what people are expecting. For the glory of Israel sounds like this great battle chant kind of to me. It sounds like that moment in, if you like theater in Les Mis or something like that, where they're going off against their enemy, or if you're more the movie type, like the, the Braveheart moment. I know that's an old reference, but some of us, we still know that movie. And it's that movie, that moment in the story where there's a collective, here's who we are and here's who we're against. You know what I'm talking about? Whatever the movie you like, I, whatever the play you like, that, that moment where there's this great alliance, allegiance that happens, that moment yesterday in our city where everyone was red or blue and felt really aligned with the red or the blue, but I'm red, so I don't talk about it today. But that moment, you know, Everyone was expecting for the glory of Israel. And that's this great rally cry against Rome. It's a great way to muster up courage and support to be 
against somebody for the glory of Israel. But the kingdom of God was never just about the glory of Israel. It's never been about us against them. Now, the church, we have often made it a battle cry that, that forms a them and an us, but the kingdom of God has never been that. When God called Abram out, the very beginning of Israel becoming Israel, right? And he calls Abram out of his land. Now, he's, he's seen as like the father of the Israelites, but in, in God's words to Abram, he says that you're the father of many nations. Many nations will come from you. When God sets apart Israel and says, I'll be your God and you be my people, he says, you're to be an example for everybody else. This is just how I'm showing how this works. You're the one that I'm showing my intentions, and I'll bless you, and people will see that, and then they'll be my people too. It's not an exclusive claim. It's not something that you get to hold as you're the insiders and everybody else is the outsiders. It's not that at all. The intention the Holy Spirit shows to Simeon and has shown since Abram is that this is to be light to the Gentiles. This is for everybody. This is a big deal. In Acts 10, if we've hung out for a while, I love to go look at Acts 10 and 11. It's like one of my favorite sections of Scripture. And this is where the early church, the, the Christians who are predominantly coming from a Jewish background, or Judaism at least is their door into Christianity. So if they're a Gentile, they become a Jude and then become a Christian. This is where they realize that God is moving well outside of where they realize. And the church almost comes behind God and says, okay, we agree with you, God. You don't need my agreement, but I agree. You're moving in them. Who am I to say you're not moving? Right? We see this throughout Scripture. And then we get to 2 Peter, our verse for this series. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. One of the things that's striking to me is, is I have talked about Acts 10 and 11 with some friends and been in even a class about it, and it's presented as if God changed his mind. God doesn't change. He's unchanging. The intent from the beginning is the Israelites would be the example and the, the Gentiles would be invited in which is really important because I'm Norwegian. That's like my in. That's been the intent. And God is slow in moving because, well, frankly, we're slow in catching on. He's slow because he wants to make room for people like me, probably people like you. And so praise God for, for his slowness here. But there's this, this part, so, so far in this series, we've taken this verse to look back, right, at how God had not changed and looked kind of at Genesis and some of that. We also get to look forward with this. This means that God will not change. And that his slowness is not because he doesn't hear us or because he's mean or because he lacks power, but because, well, he's not wanting any to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. If we look ahead, his intention is that we all know him. 
And we have this invitation to live towards that reality. We get to live as if that is what will be true. And so today, I go through today with that being my tomorrow. Does that make some sense? Let me try it this way. Okay, if there is a a movie that you love that had this ending that was so remarkable, can you think of a movie like that? Okay, there are movies or, or, or plays that, like, you get to the end of it, and you're like, man, that was so powerful, and that was so good. And then you watch that movie a second time. Here's what's happened to me every time. The second time I watch the movie or the play, I realize that the actors the entire time were moving towards that end. I didn't see the end coming, but everybody was working towards that end. The character development was all towards that end. Every conversation was about that end. That big ending that threw me off, that was so powerful, that was so remarkable. Durant, we we took him to the Star Wars movie. I don't really like Star Wars, even though I'm white, but I go with him, and and we, we watched it, and the end was powerful, and he talked for like three hours about how everything built to this end. That's good storytelling. But that's the story that we live in as well. We know the end. We know that God, love, life wins. We know that death has already been conquered. And we get to live towards that end. And we know who belongs on the good side. Right here, it says that God's intention is that no one would perish. And so our task is to live towards that end. Part of our work now is, is moving towards this unchanging God, is, is to use every day as a way of making space for more people to experience more of God. More people to realize that they've got a seat at, at his table. Now, the, the table's a big deal throughout Scripture. Acts 10, where Peter say, sees Cornelius and uh, recognizes that the Holy Spirit has come upon Cornelius, and who is he to, to withhold baptism from him? And then 11, he hangs out with Cornelius. They get to Acts 15, where the church tries to make sense of it. I was about five chapters late, you know? And so the church is trying to make sense of this experience And the way they do it is by deciding what's required to sit at the table. How do we make it easiest for the most people to sit at the table together? And there's this conversation throughout Scripture about the table and about feasts, this imagery of feasts. And I think, when when I think of feasts, I think of, of wedding feasts. I think of all the, the tables lined up looking beautiful, about to be served either chicken or fish, and, and all of this happening. And if we are inheriting Simeon's words, and if we're living into Second Peter, your first task is to find your place in that feast. That's your first job. Now, it sounds really easy, but if you're like me, and hopefully you're not, this, this is like a point of like great nervousness, me, me just being confessional right now. So I usually, usually the weddings that I go to, I'm doing the wedding. So I kind of have a role, right? But the most stressful part for me of the wedding is finding out where I'm supposed to sit. 
Do any of you have this? Like people have the most creative, beautiful ways to confuse you about where you're supposed to sit. And usually you go to some table and there's a something or other that says your table number and your name. And every time I walk up to that, I act like it's ninth grade tryouts for basketball again. As if I'm not going to find my name on the list. That's what I'm afraid of. And I go to this thing and I know that I RSVP'd and I probably did it three times because I want to make sure that they know that I'm coming. Not so much because I need the food, because I probably pre-ate because I don't know if I like what they're giving me, but because I want to see it. I want to make sure that I'm not like squished in between the aunt and the uncle, you know? And especially as the one doing the service, like they're going to squish you in because you're going to pray over the food and the aunt and uncle are going to let you be there and they're going to not be mean to you because they want you to pray over their food, too. They don't want you to make, like, an exception where, like, God bless everyone's food except that auntie because she was mean to me. So everybody's nice, but my great fear is that there's not room for me at the table. Somebody forgot. Any of you live like that? Hopefully you're way more secure than me. But the rest of the wedding's easy. Whether I'm attending or performing, the It's easy. And even afterwards, I can pretend to dance. I saw Hitch. I know what moves are legal and not legal. Like, we we can do this. We'll make it through. But that moment of walking to the table to find out if I'm really at table nine or if they forgot about me, that's the moment that's scary to me every time. I sweat bullets. And then I find my name. And I'm like, oh, right, this wasn't tryouts. This isn't merit. All I did was RSVP. All I had to say is, I'm coming. And the person who had full control over who who gets a seat at the table is the one that I answered to, so I'm good. This This is a lot of what faith ends up looking like. We talk about faith in believing in Jesus, but part of what we don't talk about and we need to talk about more is that you're believing in Jesus for your own life. You're believing that Jesus is what defines you. You're believing that Jesus is enough. That all that you say disqualifies you and whether you were late and whether the RSVP was late, all of these silly things, the one who has the power to seat people at the table has invited you to the table. And so really your task, what faith looks like, is coming to the table. That's what it looks like. Is having the courage to see, oh, okay, I am at table nine. I'm going to go sit at table nine with the rest of the folks at table nine. That's, that's what this is. And it sounds overly simple, but it's incredibly difficult. Because we like to talk about theoretical faith and, like, what Jesus means in all of these obscure ways. But we forget to talk about, like, what does Jesus mean when I am anxious about work? What does my faith mean when I am fighting with my family? What does it mean when I'm tired? What does it mean when 2019 wasn't quite my favorite? That's what we're talking about here. And this is where it really matters. You see, faith is, a big part of faith is about believing that because of Jesus we belong. That's a big piece of this. It's not the totality. We need to talk about faith in in Jesus. But part of what we forget to talk about is because of Jesus, we belong, period. 
And that means that we don't belong for other reasons. So our culture has taught us to belong by othering somebody else. The easiest way to belong is for, like, us to meet in the hallway and talk about someone else that we, like, don't like. Or something else that we don't like. Or make an other. We, we like, form a relationship over that other. You know what I'm talking about? I know you're more spiritual than me, but I've done this two, three, nine times. We get great belonging by, by doing what, what people call dehumanizing someone else. There's this great definition that I read by Michelle Mace. Well, it's on the screen, so there we go. The psychological process of demonizing the enemy, making them seem less human and hence not worthy of humane treatment. Now, we won't say, well, I demonize somebody and I made them less human. Well, yeah, I, we do this. If you've made somebody your enemy, that's what you've done. If you've talked about somebody in, in ways that are not about them as humans, but like, like saying they acted like a dirty rat, you just dehumanized somebody. You just compared them to an animal. If you have justified something because they are less than you in some way, you've dehumanized them. So we know this. We talk about this as a church quite often, in the plural especially. This is where racism comes from, right? And you study the origin of racism. It was all about, like, white people are the definition of human, and anybody else, we make them less human as a way uh, then we don't have to treat them humanely. That's the core of race. And then just tons of ways to support that and deepen that and get away from the idea that we are all made as image bearers. That's where it, what it is. Sexism was the same thing. White men decided that they were the definition of image bearers. And anyone who was a female, well, you are less. Female was not equal. Female was not treated humanely, and so then you're less, and you're demonized, and you're, you're judged. We, we do this in class, in classism, and so all the isms and all the phobias, that's what we're doing, and we're really good at it, and our systems and structures quickly adapt to ism or phobia somebody, because the easiest cheapest way, like the Cheeto of connection, is to other someone. And so we walk up to one another and we say, I don't know if I'm going to relate to you. I don't know if you're going to like me. I don't want to be vulnerable. So I'm going to guess at someone that you might other, and hopefully you'll add your amen, and we're in the same spot. And that's often our picture of belonging. Here's why we're, this is not a tangent. When we come to God's table, you don't get to bring that with you. This is one of the hard parts about it. When we come to the table, when we're invited in by faith, there is not room for you plus your othering. There's not. And so when there's ways that we, we other the plural, we, we 
we're doing classism or racism or any of these kind of things, seeing somebody less, we are dehumanizing somebody. There is not room for that and faith in our life. We have to choose one. And I'll tell you, one produces life, and one is like invented by death. Because in dehumanizing, you are saying, these people are made in the image of God, and these people are not, and I am the judge. When actually the creator said, people are made in the image of God, male and female will create them. And then mankind was created in the image of God, and he was the creator, and he is the judge, final say. So does that make some sense on the plural and why this matters? We also do it in the individual. And this is, this is probably even harder. As we go towards the end, as we are characters in this story, knowing the end, the end where God does not want anyone to perish, the end where God is being patient and we are invited to be patient, where we make room for everyone, we don't get to demonize the individual either. And this takes some more work on our end, because usually if there's somebody, an individual, that we have made the enemy, it's because of some circumstance that has happened. And there's not room for us to carry faith and othering going forward. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you just leave it and ignore it. Sometimes we need intense counseling or or spiritual mentorship, or, you know, it might take some time, but this is where we say, hey, that individual who hurt me, that offense, even that reoccurring offense, I'm not saying you walk back in to go take on more of it, but I am saying we do the work that we can be able to respond to that person as an image bearer. We keep boundaries. We're wise we don't walk ourselves into more abuse or offense, but when they come to mind, we do the work that our heart doesn't race and we don't sweat and we don't wish ill of them, but instead we say, God, you are God of, of them. You are creator of, of that individual like you are me. And this takes some work. There's some people in my life that I've needed to talk to counselors, that I've talked to spiritual directors, that I've needed to talk to them, some letters that have never been sent that I have written, all of this kind of stuff. It takes some work to release people. But if by faith we belong at the table, then we're declaring that they do as well. And if we belong at the table because we're not we're, we're not holding on to any of our past offenses or anything like that, then we cannot ask them to either. Now, here's the big thing about it. This God of the feast is also the God of justice. And we need to know that. The God of the feast is the God who sees you. The God of the feast is the God who hears you. Who doesn't let anything happen without his observing it. This God is the God of justice. But this is, this is us coming to the table, finding our name, and saying, God, I trust you to be just in this situation with this person or these people. And now I walk in to what you have for me. 
And I know that that's vulnerable, and I know that that requires faith, but that's what we're talking about. This is some of what this means here. See, we get to live with this feast in mind, with this end in mind where God's intention is for all to come to repentance. And so we do the work of having our heart align with his so that maybe, just maybe in January or February, as soon as God says, my intention is for all to come to repentance, even though I've got some rough edges today. Because there's something about the shared experience, too. So Nikki and I got to go to New York for our 20th anniversary this year, and, and we, uh, we were down in Little Italy, and we turned down this street, and we looked down, and there was a Ferris wheel in the middle of the street. And I was like, that's awesome. Let's walk towards the Ferris wheel. That's just a good rule. A good rule is if you see a giant Ferris wheel in the middle of the street, you walk towards it. And so we went in there, and it happened to be the biggest uh, Italian festival in New York. And we happened to be there on the day or the days that it happened. And so we get into the middle of it, and um, we go in there, and all of a sudden, we are Italian. Everybody treated us Italian. People are saying things in Italian, and I don't know anything. I'm, like, yelling, pasta, cannoli. And they just look at you. Like, people are willing to high-five you and hug you, and you're walking down the, the street, and people are, this, this sweet gentleman, it took me, like, an hour to decide what to eat because everything looked delicious. And it's literally, like, cannolis and stuffed shells for miles. And, and you're walking down, and everything's decorated and everybody's festive and and they're happily yelling at each other which for a Norwegian is really terrifying but that's just how they're talking and and we're going down the street and this guy comes next to us he's he's like two inches tall and, and he's 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 got some years to him and and he's like do, do you like stuffed shells and like I, yes sir he's like okay eat mine they, they give me three and I can't eat three they're, they're going to kill me, so I'm going to eat one, and I'm going to give you the other two. Do you like cannolis? Do I look like I like cannolis? Yeah, you can have one. I, I got two. You can have one of them. And he just keeps giving us his food and telling us about him hanging out with Joe DiMaggio and all these stories, and I am like, I'm, I'm Italian for the day. And I belonged, and it was one of my favorite, like my favorite New York moment was accidentally running into Little Italy. Because it was so powerful and beautiful in this shared experience that, like, the times that I've had a stuffed shell since then, I'm back. It doesn't taste as good, but I'm back there. And I'll order a stuffed shell, not because I even like stuffed shells, but I'll order it because I like that memory. I like that day. It's the same reason why I go to concerts that are maybe not even music that I like. Because when you're at a concert that's good, People you have no clue who they are sing into your ear and high-five you. And for me, that's really fun. All of a sudden, we're best friends. I don't know their name. They smell kind of weird. They're even kind of crooked high-fiving me. They dance poorly. But, man, is it fun. I'll go to any sporting event, and I am a fan of the home team because all of a sudden, you've got thousands of best friends at this event and this shared experience where you're you're on one side cheering for one thing. And something beautiful happens when we share life together. 
But what we're talking about today is much deeper than like which team you cheer for or what style of music you like. Even deeper than what origin story and ethnicity you identify with. What we're talking about here is coming to the table and that being our end imagery that we're pulled into is that you and I are made in the image of God. He is imprinted on us. And so what we celebrate is not red or blue. What we celebrate is, is not the style of music or even our ethnicity. It is deeper and richer than those things. What we're celebrating is his imprint on you, which matches his imprint on me, that we are sisters and brothers in the kingdom of God, that he has made room for all of us at his table. And so we feast. And that's that I really think when we go to these other shared experiences like a concert or a sporting event or something like that, I think it taps into that part of us that is meant for heaven. It's much smaller. No matter how great the musician is, it's much smaller, but it's tapping into that. And so we have these ways that we're invited into this feast. I'll, I'll tell you, only a few of us got to be a part of it, but... Our community day uh, last, last month, uh, a week and a half ago, that was the feast here at, at one church. Maybe my favorite one yet. 108 meals were provided. We were all moving like we were on skates because there was so much going on, so many people, people stealing Wayne's dominoes and all sorts of stuff going on. Some of it was heartbreaking. But it was a powerful day where everyone walked in, their dignity was recognized. And a meal was handed and cards were played. We had people giving each other what they had. This one young man came in with suits that he wanted to sell, and he ended up giving them away because he was given things, and he was invited to get. And there was this beautiful exchange that started to take place. I'm telling you, on the last Wednesday of next month, if you're free or find a way to be free and be here for part of this, partly because we need your help, but partly also because it is a beautiful picture of what the church is. It's a feast where all invited. And 108 people heard the invitation and came in and got a hot dog or a spicy sausage or a hamburger or something, or three, if we weren't looking. That's what this is. On weekends, I get asked sometimes, why is it important that we come to church? I can listen online, all of this. Because there's something in the shared experience when we're together, when we're together worshiping together. There's something that happens. It's a glimpse of what eternity is going to be. It's a glimpse of what we're invited into. It's a glimpse of the, the feast where all are welcome. And if I don't want to miss that one, this isn't guilt. I'm just saying, why would I want to miss this one? If this is like the appetizer, then I want to be here, and I want to be well-versed and practiced in what it looks like to participate. We're going to close up service today with receiving communion. And this is what Jesus was doing. It's like, I'm, a, I'm about to go to the cross. I'm about to conquer death. You're about to know life in a way that you've never known it before. But when you gather together and have your little feasts, 
I want you to have the big feast in mind. And I want you to come to the table and recognize that your name is on it, that you're welcome. And I want you to come to the table along with everybody else and see that everybody has a place at this table and live towards that end, live towards the reality that there is everybody that you pass, God has not changed and is patient for them to turn in repentance. And in my experience, if you're wondering where God is, God is often moving in the spaces that we've called other. And the spaces that we have taught don't have a seat at the table. And so let's be the people who are setting their place, who are making the little name tags, who are who are pulling out their chairs and making room and making sure that people know that no matter what your past or present is, Jesus is Jesus and he's never changed. And there's room for you and there's room for me. And let's live towards that end. As we go into 2020, my prayer is that we become a people individually and collectively. We're making room for ourselves, for one another, and we're doing the hard work of not letting there be an, an other, but where we just see it as we. And we live vulnerable and out there. living towards the end that God has always put before us. He's not slow as we understand slow. He's just patient and good, wanting all to turn to repentance. Make some sense? All right. In a moment, I'm going to pray for you. I, I want you to hear me clearly because we're doing this a little bit different. Um, 